Hey everyone, my name is Dustin Elliott and welcome back to another episode of the Better Questions Better Life podcast, formerly known as the Y2 podcast. Each week I try and answer a simple but important question, how can we ask better questions to live better lives? To do that, I bring you dedicated episodes where I break this question down into bite-sized, thought-provoking and tactical episodes really focused on helping you ask better questions, pulled from industry experts, science, philosophy, as well as my own observations and learnings. I also find and interview a range of industry-leading professionals who all depend on asking good questions in order to achieve their work. So from police detectives, journalists, scientists, medical professionals, qualitative researchers, data scientists, and many more to glean the lessons and techniques they use to successfully do their job and help us ask better questions. As always, I want to take a quick minute and thank the Better Questions, Better Life podcast sponsor, YZ. YZ is an easy-to-use online training software that makes it so simple to create and deliver online learning. The YZ platform is very flexible and you can use it to automate a whole range of tasks in your business from managing all of your employee training, training customers and partners in your products, tracking licenses and qualifications of your staff, creating and selling online courses, capturing more leads with free online courses and so much more. So if any of that sounds even remotely interesting, then I really suggest you jump over to their website at yz.com, that's w-y-z-e-d.com, to check out some videos and even get started with your own 14-day free trial. Remember, if you like these episodes and you want to hear more and you haven't done already, make sure you hit that subscribe button to the Better Questions, Better Life podcast, wherever you find your podcast. The button ain't going to hit itself, so make sure you do that if you like it. And as you hear on every other podcast out there, we love if you can leave us a five-star review if you haven't already. Of course, you can jump over to the website at betterquestionsbetterlife.co where you can find links, resources, soon to be a blog, putting together some really cool projects as well at the moment uh, to help you ask better questions outside of the podcast and all that other good stuff. So make sure you check it out and stay tuned. Of course, you can always join in on the conversation on our Facebook page, Instagram, and the other social media handles. And you're going to find us at Better Questions Better Life. Uh, you can also follow along on social media and because uh, if that if that uh, name's a little too long then we're going to try and dominate the hashtag bqbl so hopefully we're going to blow that up with lots of really cool conversations and uh, again if you want to find us that would probably be the easiest way but with that being said though let's get right into it and here is part one of norell fraser's interview now norell was a member of the victoria police for over 27 years 15 of those as a detective at the Rape and Homicide Squads and Missing Person Unit, but also dedicating much of her career to investigating child abuse and sex offenses. Norell has received many awards during her successful career and has developed an amazing reputation as a dedicated, meticulous, and passionate investigator. She's worked on a range of high-profile investigations, including Anna and Grace Sharp, uh, Margaret and Paul Whale King, uh, Maria Corp, the 2002 Bali bombings, uh, a range of her other horrific investigations, including the Ascot Fail Rapist, and, and many, many more. She's truly stared uh, death and trauma in the face throughout her career. Um, we obviously don't go into a heap of detail uh, in terms of a lot of the depths of those investigations, but uh, if you want, and I strongly recommend you, 
do uh, do jump on to Australia True Crime Podcast, which you can easily find her, their episodes where they interview Narelle around a lot of this stuff. Uh, just jump on your favorite podcasting app, search for Narelle Fraser or Australia True Crime, and you'll find it. And there's some absolutely amazing, amazing, amazing interviews in there. But with that being said, let's get to Narelle's interview here. Narelle, welcome to the Y2 Podcast. Thank you. It's uh, it's such a pleasure to be sitting across from you today. We've uh, we've obviously had a chat prior today and, and mm-hmm. talking about the project and all and all the things that come encompass that. And I remember when I first sat back uh, when I started writing out what this mini series would be, and it was put to me that um, to 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 reach out to people whose professional job was to ask uh, you know questions and the outcome of. Uh, the person's job being directly linked to the question they asked. I'm yep. fairly certain that uh, police officer was right at the top of the list because I yes. think of of any career, and I, I might might be overstating a bit, but I think of any career that somebody can be in, um, given the seriousness of the situations and and yep. the, 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 opp- the things that you may find yourself in, I can't think of another role out there which has such a, a seriousness in terms of not only the situations but also the the emotional aspect as well too, the introspective components so also i suppose the impact of what that interview can do to your life so you're right it's it's up there yeah Mm. so for me this is such a such a pleasure to uh, sit down with you but i suppose for my listeners who might might not have heard of you Mm -hmm. uh i love if you can just quickly take us through a little bit about your your career and and touching on a few of the the key areas uh that you're so well known for now sure um i was a cop for 27 years with Victoria Police. I didn't join until I was a little bit older. I was 27 when I joined. I'd been a secretary. And I was doing some um, volunteer work with Lifeline, which is, um, I think most people know what Lifeline Mm. is, that um, uh, crisis telephone support service. And a number of times we rang the police, like to say, look, somebody's in a real mess here or wherever. And I thought to myself, what a great job that would be just to be able to help people and do something to help them out of a crisis. And because I've always been interested in people and uh, their emotions and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, it's funny how things work, you know, how things go, um, everything falls into place mm-hmm. because I was very fit at the time, <laughs> a lot different to now, but <laughs> I was very fit at the time and I went to the careers office and everything just sort of fell into place at careers office at Vicpol. Mm-hmm. Just to sort of, I thought, you know, I think I want to be a cop. I'd love to do that. <laughs> and nobody else I knew had ever been a cop. Like mm-hmm. I didn't know anyone, nothing. Like I was a bit of a black sheep in that regard in, with my family. And um, anyway, I can honestly say with my hand on my heart that the day I walked into the academy for my start of my training... I just knew I'd made the right decision. It just felt right. And uh, so I did my training and um, I didn't really have any ideas of where I wanted to go or anything, but I thought, look, I'll just, you know, go with the flow. So um, for some reason, I started to get really interested in sexual assaults and victims. I I always felt I wanted, uh, I wanted to help the victims, but I also found the offenders very interesting. I don't think we're allowed to call them offenders anymore. I think we have to call them persons of interest. <laughs> um, we used to call them crooks, suspects, yeah, yeah. you know, but now we have to call them POIs, persons of interest. But um, 
uh, I also was really interested in why, what made them offend and why they offended and why that particular time, how they were feeling and, uh, like, going right into that. So I started to get really interested in that and sex offenders really interested me um, because they... Um, uh, the damage that they leave behind, I don't know too many victims of a sexual mm. assault that ever really get over it. They might be able to, um, like people say, I'll oh, move on. But I don't think most can. It's always in the back of their mind. Mm. Anyway, so I um, went to Broadmeadows. This is I'm probably about five, six years in the job now. And I went to Broadmeadows and I specialised. I went to the Sex Offence and Child Abuse Unit at Broadmeadows. I was there for five years and if ever I found my calling, that was it. Hmm. I loved it. I loved the thrill of the chase as in, um, you know, you'd get somebody come in, a, a victim, they'd uh, tell you a, a something that had happened to them and just um, to start digging into this person that they're saying had, you know, done the offence, uh, committed the offence. And I found that really interesting, like digging down and finding out stuff about them and then organising to go and, uh, you know, did we have enough to arrest them? Um, and if we did arrest them, could we remand them in custody mm. or, or would we charge them, would we summons them, all this sort of stuff. And it was a great feeling when you had that much evidence and really good evidence that it didn't matter what they said, mm. you knew that you could charge them. Mm. And they'd try and squirm out of the, you know, the reason some people had for committing offence, say, against a child, like whether that be a sexual assault or a physical assault, some of the reasons were, well, I was going to say laughable, but nothing mm. is laughable in child offences, child abuse. Um, but... I found that really, I, I thought it was just so interesting, the whole thing. And um, from there I went to the rape squad. I, I wanted to be a detective and I wanted to, because I loved the investigating side. Mm -hmm. um, so I got a job, I applied for a, to be a detective, which was quite a big promotion. I studied my backside off. Clearly it didn't work, <laughs> but I tried. Um, but I studied my backside off to become a detective and uh, that was just fantastic. So the rape squad investigate unknown offenders or very complicated sexual assaults, mm -hmm. but they've got to be very serious. Uh, the rape squad have a lot of access to a lot of stuff that your divisional detectives mm. or your, you know, your local police don't have. We have access to some, you know, unbelievable information through an analyst. Um, who you know basically runs the show an analyst mm. they have all that information they've got a brilliant mind analytical mind and um, I worked at the homicide um, missing persons child exploitation um, rape squad sexual crime squad but then in 2012 um, uh, looking back I think my oh god how did I last that long without realizing I was stressed but I got a bit stressed I thought I was just tired, needed a bit of a you know few days off, and um, a few things happened which I'm happy to go into you know later if you want. But there was a few things that happened, and I thought, gee, I'm not going too well here. And uh, I went to a doctor, and I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress, 
and um, chronic was really bad. Mm. I didn't think it was, and I thought the doctor had it wrong. And I said, post-traumatic stress. I said, but I'm Narelle Fraser. Like, I can't have that. He said, I love my job. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, well, he sent me to a psych just to confirm it. And I went to the psych, and the psych confirmed it within probably 30 seconds. And I tried everything to go back to work, um, but I didn't realise how sick I was. Mm. Um, and um, I was unravelling big time. And um, I, I've never, ever been in the position where I've ever wanted to take my life or anything like that. But, um, I, and again, I suppose it comes back to my background and my mum and dad and the support I've had. But um, I was in a pretty bad way. Um, so anyway, bottom line yeah. is I couldn't get better. I, I couldn't get, go back to work. I realised the longer I was away, um, the uh, better I was becoming. Mm. So... I ended up never being able to go back to work. But it's funny where one door closes, another door opens. And things have just gone ahead in leaps and bounds. And now I do, um, because in, um, as a detective, policing is all about asking questions. Um, You know, what happened? What did you see? What time? All that sort of stuff. And um, I've honed my, um, I suppose, over the years, I've learned what questions work and what doesn't. Mm -hmm and how um, important rapport is. Whereas years ago in 1987 when I joined, rapport wasn't something you even thought of. It was just, um, come here, you little asshole. You know, <laughs> what's happened? Yeah. You tell me what's happened or I'll, you know, whatever. And um, it was a different job back then. But now it's all about rapport and asking the right questions, sitting them down, making them relaxed. Like, it was la- that would have been laughable mm. when I first joined. But I think it's great how it's policing is now. It's actually about the psychology of how people think and how to get to the bottom of the job, the bottom of the investigation. Um, just it's about trying finding the truth. Yeah. Whereas years ago, it didn't matter what the truth was. Like in 1987, <laughs> I'm ashamed to say, but that's just how it was. You know, it was a different world. Yeah. Uh, now, that was a very, very long answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that was great. I mean, I, I think y- y- your career is un- unbelievable. And I think it's – I say that because I've I've listened to some of the podcasts as well that you've been a part of, the Australia True Crime, and I'll, I'll have links because people – yeah, people need to go listen to it, and I yep. think get to get a real sense and depth of yep. those situations. Some of the situations you found yourself in are, uh, I mean, it's completely unfathomable. Yes, <laughs> but but I mean, I suppose on that though, where where I want to kind of I suppose jump into in terms yep. of you talk about questions. Yes, um, this is probably a, a a very broad question and probably sacrilegious in <laughs> terms of my podcast. But I mean, when you, when you were finding yourself sitting down with somebody who'd been accused of, of rape or of some yep. crime kind of thing, yep. um, how, how did you approach that situation? What, I mean, when you're sitting down with somebody for the first time after mm-hmm. they've been charged or after you're maybe before they've been charged, how do you start to investigate and ask them questions and, and get their side of the story? How do you start with that? Well, before, to bring in uh, the POI, the person of interest, I used to call them crooks or suspects. I'll call mm-hmm. them a suspect. Um, before you bring in a suspect, you should really have your powder dry on everything else because that is really the last step 
of the process. Mm -hmm. So by the time we bring in the suspect, we've um, uh, arrested him and brought him in. And let's say it's for a rape, right? Mm -hmm. Because that makes it easy. Because we have a power of arrest for all sorts of reasons. It's a serious offence. They're a suspect for it. We've got to question him. Um, So before we actually speak to him, and generally it's a him, I'm not... um, I don't want to sound like I'm a man-hater. I mm. love men. Um, I'm actually married to a, a man that's beautiful. I love, I've love. i worked with men all my life. I love them. Um, but unfortunately, men, uh, I've dealt with mostly men, um, offenders, uh, that be sexual and physical. There are two female rapists, would you believe, mm. that I actually did interview, but mm. most of them, the majority men. Um, so what will happen is... Um, that is the last step of the process, but mm. to bring him in and interview him. But before that, um, I have done sometimes it's months of work, sometimes it's a couple of days, sometimes it's a couple of hours. Um, but you dig down and you get ev- all the information that you possibly can so that you go into the interview like fully. Um, um, briefed mm-hmm. on everything that's happened so that if they answer a question or they ask a question that or they're going down a path that you know is wrong you you've got it's a little bit of I suppose it's power to think I know where you're going mm. and I like to know they're telling they're not telling the truth anyway so the process um, let's say a victim comes in and get, and um, reports a rape so we get a, a very, very detailed statement from the victim. That can take... I've had um, taken rape statements that have taken days. It's a very difficult process because mm. the victim is generally very traumatised, very distressed. They've got to have a lot of breaks. But it doesn't differ much between interviewing a witness and interviewing an offender because forgetting about what happened years ago, I'm talking about now, mm-hmm. you know, in the last 10 years. So now it's all about... That, that first stage, that, that first moment that you meet either the witness or the offender, the crook, um, that first moment is so important because that's where that rapport starts. From the minute you say hello or, you know, um, and introduce yourself. And if you lose them, if you don't establish that rapport, that connection, mm-hmm. you're not going to get a very good... Um, um, Pricey of what's happened from the witness, but you're also not going to get information from the offender either because he's going to think, um, I don't like her, mm-hmm. uh, she's arrogant or whatever. So it's so important to establish rapport. And how did you do that in those first couple of critical seconds? Is there certain things that you were conscious of making sure you were doing or saying or yes. presenting yourself most, in order to do the best? Yes, most of the time I would always be empathetic. I think... Um, to understand that somebody either being arrested for an offence, whether it's a rape or the theft of a purse, um, they are very anxious. They don't know Mm. what's happening. As in a witness, most times when a witness comes in to tell you something, they've never been in this position before. So I find that, um, you know, when they first come in, I'll introduce myself, I'll tell them, um, I'll ask them what their name is. You know, uh, your name is Dustin, for instance. I'd say, what would you prefer me to call you? And you might go Dusty or Dust or mm. whatever. So from then on, it would always be, let's say you say Dust, right? So I'd go, I would call you Dust from that moment on. Um, and empath- empathising 
um, understanding that they've never been in this position before, so they don't know what's going on. Most of the time, if somebody knows what's going on, they are going to be yeah. a lot more relaxed. So you say, um, now what I'm going to do today, let's say this is a victim, what I'm going to do today is, um, look, that is, um, I, I can't imagine what you must have been through. So automatically empathising with yep. them, look, I'm, I'm there, I'm, I'm here, yep. you know, I'm on your side kind yes. of thing. Yes, yeah. and I would say something along the lines of, look, I have been doing, um, I've been investigating sexual offences for a long, long time. Give them some sort of credibility, yeah. myself some credibility, and I'd say that um, everyone's different, um, uh, I want to hear your story from the start to the finish, I'm interested, so that you are, they think, God, she's really... In, mm. Number one is she's been doing this a while, so she knows yeah. what she's doing. Number two is that I want them to know that I am interested. I want to know everything that's happened. And I will then um, talk to them about what might happen. And from the very mm. start, I think it's really important with a witness that you tell the witness that no matter how good our case is, no matter how good your evidence is, we might get to the point where it gets to a trial. You may have to give evidence mm. in a trial. You may. So I tell them what might happen. And it might actually be that the guy gets off. He may be found not guilty. Now, that's no one's fault. We have done everything we can. But I feel from the moment they come in, you've got to be truthful. You don't actually say, this is going to be a breeze. <laughs> yeah. This is going to be easy. We're going to get him. We're going to arrest him. Yeah. We're going to put him in the slammer and he'll never get out. Yeah. You never say that. So you're setting expectations in terms Correct. of this is what's going to happen and this is what maybe the outcome is. Yeah. So you're trying to not set them up for a rosy picture in terms Correct. of in terms of making sure that they're fully engaged or in that they don't all of a sudden just that credibility is destroyed later on kind of yes, thing. Yes, yeah. So, um, and I tell them how difficult it is that, um, you know, I will help you all the way. I'll hold basically hold your hand the whole process. Mm -hmm. But... If it can often be that a jury may find the the suspect not guilty, or by that stage he's a you know he's charged, um, but he might get off. Mm -hmm. So you prepare them. The same with an offender. When an offender comes in, I will act basically no different. Even though in my heart I'll sometimes I will think, what a prick he is. Mm. Um, how could you do that to this vulnerable woman or little kid or whatever? Inside, I may despise him. But if I show that, I'm not going to get anything from him, am I? So what I've got to do is suppress that 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 feeling and really almost pretend that he's a great bloke. Oh, you put, yeah, I know, you've probably been um, uh, misjudged, yes. And, you know, the, the excuses they make, mm. you feel like saying, mate, really? <laughs> do yeah. you really expect me to believe that? But... And you put all your biases aside. Mm. You have to. And I will say the same thing to a, um, an offender. I'll say, I'm Narelle Fraser. What would you prefer to be called? Do you want a tea or a coffee? Um, this is the process today. I'm going to be interviewing you. You may or may not be charged. I don't know. But this is your opportunity. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to what the, the victim has said. Yeah. Um and, you know, sometimes they'll make no comment because they're advised to by their solicitor. Um, but if that's the case, that's their, their right. If they don't want to say it, that's fine. But I treat them all the same 
because the number of offenders that I've treated, really, they would think I was treating them with respect, right? Even though I don't like them, I could despise them. But most sex offenders, for some reason, they'll talk because they'll talk to you. If you've got an empathetic, sympathetic um, approach and, you know, you do the old nodding, oh, yes, oh, I understand. Active listening, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you, and you paraphrase a lot so that, so are you saying that this happened and, and, and then that's their opportunity? No, no, what I meant was um, I got in from the other side of the, oh, okay. So by paraphrasing, you also show that you are active listening. Mm-hmm. Um I also find, I'm probably going off on a bit of a tangent here, but just some um, things that have helped me over the years is, um, you know, you keep, whether it be a witness or an offender, you keep the vocabulary simple. You don't try and make out like you are, you know, some Rhodes Scholar, I've got, (laughs) you know, all these uni degrees. Yeah. There's no point talking to someone like that. Back to that connection, right? You need to speak to them on their terms. On their level. With their empathy and with that openness. Yeah. You're not trying to be a smartass. You are trying, you're not trying to be better than them because if they feel a bit intimidated by you, um, they're not going to feel as comfortable. So um, it's about coming coming up to their level or down to their level, what be. If a businessman, you know, if, um, I don't know, some uh, James Packer comes in, I would probably, um, I would attempt <laughs> to um, um, uh, connect with him, but it would be, I would connect differently to how I would connect with somebody from, um, I don't know, East Malvern, Turak, Broadmeadows, uh, you level it out to what you think. Mm. But also, it's really important, um, silence. It is a golden... Silence can be golden. Because what happens is, if I ask a question, and they might say, um, oh, well, I'll say, what happened then? Oh, I went, I walked across the, the path and I saw this man. And if I just shut up, which doesn't come easily to me, silence <laughs> is quite difficult for me, but if you do remain silent, they've answered the question... But if you don't say anything, they feel like they have to fill in Mm. that silence. So they'll think, oh, she wants to know more. So they'll keep talking. Just little things like that. Um, uh, The pace of the interview, you know, you just keep it nice and slow. There's a whole lot of things too that you've to think about. So essentially when you meet the person, you're... So you're doing it now. Yeah. Par- that's exactly what you do. You're paraphrasing. Yeah. Go. Yep. So you're connecting with them on their their name, mm-hmm. with their vocabulary, letting them letting them know the process, managing expectations, yes. and um, con- connecting with them in the sense that you're on that journey with them. You're not an adversarial. And you're I'm not, interested you're in interested. what they're going to yep. say. Yep. And then from there... The silence is golden and yep. paraphrasing and that active listening and making sure that they're still feeling like you're still with them on that journey. You're not out to get them. No. I am trying to establish the truth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. What happens though, I'm curious, if you fall out of rapport, if, if there's a moment or an inference when maybe through a bit of a slip up or an interpretation mm-hmm. of them when all of a sudden they go, ooh, yeah, this person's trying to 
they're trying to pin me for something. Mm-hmm. How do you, is there ways to manage or repair the rapport or to, to sort of fix those and kind of wind back and try to get back on that sort of, you know, we're on um, the same path, we're on the same team kind of thing? Sometimes once you lose rapport, you never get it back. That's it, kind of. Sometimes. Yeah. But what I would do is I would try and fix that rapport. And I'd try, I would probably say something like this. Now, oh, I noticed then that you um, you frowned and you don't seem happy. Mm. Um, have I said something there? Or I would actually bring it out in the open and ask. Just explicitly, hey, this happened. What was that kind of thing? Instead of you trying to make yeah, inferences yeah. from that. And if you can't repair it, I would try to repair it. Um, and I'd probably say something along the lines that, um, look, I understand you might be annoyed. I understand you might be a little bit pissed off with the questions, but all I'm trying to establish is what happened, mm. the truth of what's happened. And I'm sorry if that offends you, but it's something I have to ask. You know, like, oh, gee, I'm sorry about this, but I've really got to do yeah. this. So, um, but if the worst comes to the worst, oh, pardon me, I would probably think about, the my corroborator and you know give them the look like do you want to take over and see if they can Mm. um establish the rapport Mm -hmm. but um another thing with rapport just at the very start i meant to say i would also um say things like um is there anything that you're not sure of that do you need to know anything before the interview proceeds Mm. and i'll say things like um just anything like how was your trip in today? Uh, beautiful day out there. Um, I might try something like, that's a really nice jumper you're wearing. I might hate the jumper, right? <laughs> but I might yeah. say, that's a really nice jumper you're wearing. You look really smart. And they'll go, oh, thanks. I got this at Meyer at the sale. Oh, I was at the Meyer sale yesterday mm. too. So, or the shoes or just to pick up something. With women, I will often, you know, say something like they're really nice earrings or just something and they think oh she actually sort of likes me or Mm -hmm. you know she's not as um tough or whatever you know as Mm. i thought she was yeah i'm curious as well you know i would imagine in your line of work you've had a few people lie to you or be dishonest i think that's probably oh just a a, few a a few yeah (laughs) how do you go about um managing that whether it be your your intuition or just your experience or maybe the evidence is saying something contrary how do you start to go about to call them out on that or or dig deeper into that um without necessarily dropping that rapport and saying you're a liar Tell me the truth, right? How do you go about managing that process? Good question, because years ago, um, when I first joined in 87, uh, it was very aggressive. Mm. The interview was aggressive. And you didn't really care what they said because you had um, a set of questions and you would ask them those questions. Didn't matter, you know. Mm. um, You took no notice. Um, But now what we do is um, if they want to lie, I can't stop them lying. Mm -hmm. So you just let them go because really in the end, the evidence is what will prove that they are lying. What if you don't have the evidence though? Or the evidence isn't strong enough. So we need them to divulge something to go, oh, there's something else we need to go speak to or we need to look at deeper or we need to get more evidence, but you need some information from them to, to, to take that next step. How do you sort of go about that? You know, if the evidence isn't there, 
And if we can't prove that they're lying, so be it. Mm. That is, you know, in the end, that's why you um, do so much investigation and um, uh, to try and counteract any um, excuses or any um, story that they might try and lie to cover their tracks or mm-hmm. to cover what they've done. Um, but sometimes you just got to accept, you know what, he lied but I can't prove it. However, what we do now is, and we used to go years ago, you'd go, I put it to you, I suggest that you're lying. <laughs> and, you know, it was very aggressive. Now it's more a conversational approach. Mm-hmm. And so now what we do is um, we'd say something like this. We'd go, look, I understand you're saying uh, that you didn't go to the house on this particular day and that the girl's lying. Mm-hmm. However, I've got some CCTV footage that shows you at the house on that day. Can you explain mm. that? So what you're saying is you're lying, you prick. <laughs> <laughs> but in a very subtle way. Yeah. I... Like, I think that's a very, um, that's a great way of, really um, trying to catch them out. So mm. You're not trying to catch them out. You're just trying to get to the truth. Yeah, exactly. You know? There That's... is genuine CCTV there and you're going, well, you're saying this, but that's saying that. Actually, so that's a good the, point. You, know... you would never, ever... If you didn't have the CCTV footage, mm. you would never, ever say you did. Because what happens if your offender knows there's no CCTV footage right. and you're actually saying there is? So then he will know that you lose any yeah, respect, any rapport, yeah. any credibility whatsoever. Um, and also, like, you know, basic investigative techniques, you don't lie. You don't say something if you've got something, if you haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, and even things like the way you sit in an interview, where you sit in an interview, what I wear. Like, for instance, if I've got... Say somebody like Mick Gatto or some, you know, an underworld, alleged underworld figure or somebody tough. Mm-hmm. You you have to come up to that level a little bit and you're not going to be a mamby-pamby. Oh, hi, Mr Gatto. Mm. You, you know, you need to um, show some um, authority. Mm-hmm. And if I'm just, um, if I want to show, what's that word? Sorry, the the way that you set up the interview room is terribly important. So if you have a desk in the interview you know, years ago they used to have desks. Mm-hmm. The desk is a barrier. Just a little thing. If you take away that desk and just have two chairs, that isn't a ama- it takes away a lot of that um, uh, stiffness, you know, mm-hmm. and it just makes things seem a little more casual. Mm-hmm. And instead of having office chairs, you have a casual chair like we're sitting in today. You know, just something a little bit more loungy. Not to the point where they're going to, you know... <laughs> have a sneeze yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, just little things like that. What I wear. Like, I'm not going to wear... For instance, if I was interviewing um, uh, James Packer, I am not going to wear... Um, a pair of jeans and a Mm T-shirt. However, if I'm interviewing somebody that is unemployed, hasn't got a house, um, you know, is a Mm down-and-outer, you're not going to go in there wearing a suit and tie. 
So you'd wear jeans, just something to make them feel more comfortable, not like it's going from one extreme to the other. Yeah. Um, and like even if with a suit, even if you just take off your tie and have an undone, undone button, it's just a bit more casual. Mm-hmm. But the big thing we've got rid of now, most times now with interviews, you get rid of the desk mm-hmm. because it is such a barrier. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've heard as well too, I've heard that there's a, there's a technique where you, you get people off the floor or you get their feet off their floor. So somebody pointed this out on actually Dr. Mm-hmm. Phil. I've never looked into the lividity, but never if you're it. trying to get somebody to be more vulnerable, yes. then you get their feet off the ground. It's mm-hmm. something to do if you're really emotional, but if you want them to be more planted in their situation, mm-hmm. you put their feet on the you, you, smaller chair, basically. Mm. So I've always, I've always wondered about that, but, uh, mm. um, but mm. never oh, heard of it. There we go. This could be a new tip. <laughs> You've taught me yeah. something. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to go back to this too. This is something that, um, I've become very apparent through this research process and it's something that uh, would be front and center in your role and that's bias. Because even you're sitting down with this person and you might have said you've done all this investigation, you have Mm -hmm. irrefutable evidence, but you still need to give, Mm -hmm. you know, them in terms of the search for the truth. You still need to be aware of that. How do you go about checking your biases as much as possible at the door and, and not having all the, the confirmation bias and, and mm-hmm. all those other sorts of things bleed through. How do you approach that from a personal sense? Hey everyone, just before I head off, I want to take another quick moment and thank you very much for joining me for today's episode. As always, a big thank you to our sponsor, YZ. Um, Don't forget to check them out for your own free 14-day trial. Um, Remember, if you like this episode and you want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to the YZ podcast wherever you find your podcasts so you don't miss out on any new episodes as they come out. And don't forget to leave a five-star review if you haven't already. Really appreciate it. Um, Also, make sure you check out our YouTube page if you want to watch many of these episodes online. And of course, you can jump over to the Y2 Podcast website. That's projecty2.com, projecty2.com, where you can subscribe to our mailing list to get weekly topical articles and resources and a range of additional content not released on the Y2 Podcast, all focused on helping you ask better questions to live a better life. And with that being said, I'll speak to you soon. Hey everyone, thank you so much again for listening to today's episode. Just remember, if you want to join in on the conversation, make sure you jump over to the social media handles. You're going to find us at Better Questions, Better Life on Facebook, Instagram, BQBL underscore on the Twitter. Of course, you can make sure you jump into the hashtag BQBL. Of course, you can check out our website at betterquestionsbetterlife.co. And I obviously, I want to take a quick minute again and thank our sponsor, YZ. Make sure you get started with your own 14-day free trial at yz.com. That's w-y-z-e-d.com. With that being said, speak to you next time.